Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Holger Dressler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Chris Capazzola, professor of history at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts, about his new book, Bound by War, How the United States and the Philippines Built America's First Pacific Century, fresh off the press from basic books. Bound by War offers a sweeping historical account of the relationship between the United States and the Philippines from 1898 to today through the lens of war. The book is an entangled trans-Pacific history grounded in deep archival research and presented in narrative prose accessible to a wider readership. Besides war, the book is also about empire, about labor, migration, and the century-long quest by Filipinos and Filipino-Americans for a trans-Pacific identity, a sense of belonging, and most importantly, respect. Capazzola uses the metaphor of bonds um, as a guiding thread throughout the book, Uh, bonds of war and blood, coercion and colonialism on one end of the spectrum, and also bonds of friendship and alliance at the other end, bonds of generation, uh, generations um, coming together and bonds reaching across the Pacific. Chris Capazzola, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Chris, I wonder if you could begin by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I I should say that I came to being a historian um, first in some ways by being a history teacher. Um, I began um, by teaching 7th, 8th, and ninth grade social studies. Um, and one of my first teaching jobs involved teaching U.S. history to students who were not from the United States. And I always say that's the best practice um, for becoming an American historian, because the first word that you stop using um, is the word we or us, um, and makes you think about U.S. history in completely new and different ways. Um, And then after a few years of teaching, I went to graduate school, and and I now teach at MIT in Boston, and I've been there for about 18 years now, um, where I teach 20th century U.S. history, uh, political history. Um, as well as the history of law, the history of the U.S. military, um, and a bunch of different topics that intersect with uh, with the book that we're talking about today. Great. As a German-born U.S. historian, I, I really identify with that perspective, um, questioning the, the we and uh, uh, the perspectives uh, from which historians approach American history. Um, so let's move to the book. How did you come to write this book about the complicated relationship between the United States and the Philippines over the last century or so? Well, it's a good question. The book that I just published is maybe not the same as the book that I set out to write. And that's probably the same for every author. Hmm. Um, but it uh, it began um, in some ways as an outgrowth of, of my first book, um, Uncle Sam Wants You, which was a history of the United States during the First World War. And that book focused on the domestic politics of the United States. Uh, it focused largely on the idea of citizenship, um, who belongs um, in a cultural and, and, and uh, in a cultural sense, as well as who belongs in a legal and political sense. Uh, and how that is wrapped up in the power of the United States um, as as it operates in the world. Um, now, that's not a, a immediately going to send you to write a book about the history of the U.S. and the Philippines in the 20th century. Um, but in some ways, those themes are, are at work there, right? Um, what is this institution of the U.S. military? Um, and how do we understand it as a force in the 20th century that not only, um, you know, sort of destroyed, but also created, right? Um, that made new relationships, new landscapes, new identity formations, new ways of working. Um, and in particular, um, in a place like the Philippines um, and wanting to kind of bring that part of the story um, into U.S. history, um, not just adding it, but also bringing it in in a way that I thought changed U.S. history along the way. Thank you for that. Um, let's start at the beginning where your book starts, uh, namely with the War of 1898, where the United States defeats Spain in three and a half months and takes over the biggest Spanish colony in Asia, the Philippines. Um, you write about uh, the military occupation, um, the coming of the Philippine-American War, 
and the role that Filipinos played um, both uh, uh, on both sides, really, for striving for independence, uh, but then also being recruited into um, U.S. in the U.S. military uh, in the new institution of the Philippine Scouts. Can you set the scene really for us in, in the late 19th century? Uh, what's going on in the Philippines, and um, how does warfare and the military figure there? Well, I think that's a great question because it actually encourages us to begin this history not um, in the United States, not in Washington, D.C., or with anything that was on the minds of President William McKinley or or later Theodore Roosevelt, um, but in fact to begin the story in the Philippines when, where this was a Spanish colony um, that was also undergoing its own nationalist movement and, and, and a push for independence. Uh, and that really thought that um, that the 1890s were a moment that they could push Spain um, for political reforms or, in fact, actually uh, for independence, and that the United States would be an ally of that. Um, and it's in, in direct sort of intervention with that that the United States um, gets mixed up in many ways in the Philippine Revolution, um, in a war that Americans tend to call the Spanish-American War, um, but that's actually not the right name for it, right? Um, uh, the wars of 1898 were multiple in the Caribbean and the Pacific, um, and the United States war in the Philippines was its own conflict, um, a conflict that began with a war against Spain that ends very quickly, um, that becomes a very long war against uh, the, the independent Philippine Republic and its political movements and its armed forces. But from the very beginning, um, and this is what, for me, brings the, the sort of ironies of this story out from the very beginning, is on the very first day of the occupation of the Philippines, uh, American military forces relied on Filipinos um, to do some of the labor of the invasion, right? They hire uh, civilian Filipinos to help them land um, and, and disembark from U.S. Navy ships. And that moment um, of employment I think sets up the beginning of a relationship that is at once both military and uh, economic and, and labor in its orientation. Um, irony also shapes um, the U.S. war against the, uh, the Philippine Republic um, and in what we now call counterinsurgency, although that's not a term being used by the army at the time, um, the U.S. establishes uh, sort of a small force that is designed to suppress uh, political and military movements for independence. And they do so in part by recruiting Filipinos to serve under U.S. forces um, in a new unit called the Philippine Scouts. The Philippine Scouts were, in many ways, for me, the motivation for this book um, and what compelled me to, to, to write it, um, although not necessarily in the final form it took. Mm -hmm. That this was a, a, an institution of the U.S. Armed Forces. The United States maintained a colonial army of Philippine scouts from 1901 until uh, 1946, when the Philippines became independent. And yet, uh, we know so little about it. Um, and knowing its history is important on its own terms. Knowing um, what it shows about America is important. And also knowing what it shows about Philippine history is important as well. Great. Um, you write at, towards the end of the, that first chapter that, quote, by pursuing occupation on the cheap, the United States bound Filipino civic aims to the demands of U.S. foreign policy, but compensated them with safety status and cold hard cash, unquote. Um, I found that was a um, quite powerful summary, um, uh, uh, thinking about the Philippine scouts, uh, but then also the aspirations that uh, service in the in the scouts raised uh, among Filipinos. Um, can you talk a little bit more about uh, the connections um, of military um, service, military labor, and um, a sense of, of respect, responsibility um, uh, uh, that would uh, would be raised through that through that service? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, uh, it's worth remembering that the Philippine Scouts is, uh, although it's new in name, it's not a new institution. Um, mm -hmm. And in fact, it brings together a couple of different strands. Of course, Spain had had a colonial army in the Philippines 
Um, and many of those soldiers were precisely the ones who were being recruited into this new U.S. force. But even if you stop to think about the name of the force, you realize that it also has a history. Um, it, it echoes the Indian scouts, right? the formations that were recruited in the 19th century wars against native nations um, by the U.S. Army. Right? So both of these are coming together. Um, but the, the Philippine scouts as an institution begins largely uh, by providing um, sort of ordinary labor, a lot of um, the sort of grunt work of the army in the Philippines, um, as well as a lot of tasks like security um, and other things um, that, were, that would have required a really substantial commitment of U.S. forces um, to do on their own. Right? It's worth remembering that the Philippine-American War was highly contentious, and it was also a really big military commitment. U.S. troops, um, U.S. troop numbers in country maxed out around 70,000 um, during the worst um, and sort of toughest phases of the war. Um, and at a time when the war was very controversial, the, the U.S. government uh, pursued the policy then, which we've done in, in many wars in the 20th century, of reducing troop numbers in country in order to take some of the political heat off of the domestic politics of the war. Mm -hmm. That led to increased recruitment of Filipino troops in the Philippine scouts, to the point that by the 1920s, you actually end up with more uh, Filipinos in the Philippine scouts um, than there are American soldiers in the Philippines. Right? Um, so the task of, of guarding this U.S. colony um, is in many ways uh, undertaken by the colonial subjects themselves. Um, and these are some of the other irony here is that these are some of the lowest ranking positions in the U.S. military. Um, they're, they're underpaid, they're under-resourced, um, and in fact, actually, uh, Philippine soldiers are even paid in a different currency so that they end up making about half of what American soldiers make. Um, but nevertheless, these are very good positions in the Philippines. Um, these come with high status. These come with high wages, wages that were paid in cash um, in a country where cash was pretty scarce. Um, and so this creates a kind of tie for a lot of the Philippine scouts, such that many of them enlist and then re-enlist and then bring their own sons and grandsons to re-enlist in generations after them. Right. So you talked about the Philippine scouts, and shortly thereafter, there is a civilian counterpart being founded uh, by the U.S. Um, administration, the Philippine Constabulary. Can you talk a little bit about the civilian um, institution that complements uh, the more military-oriented work of the Philippine scouts? As I understood, the constabulary uh, was more of a police force, uh, surveilled uh, um, uh, potential insurgents um, and um, enemies of the of the administration, um, but also engaged in in uh, various acts of violence and, and, and torture. Um, you say that Filipinos would learn to be partners in violence, if not partners in, in power. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this Philippine constabulary um, in the early 20th century? Well, uh, you talk about the scouts and the constabulary as if they're two different things, and they are two different institutions, but they're doing really some of the same work. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in governing the Philippines and in sort of managing political uh, political opposition. And it's the origins of the institution results in some ways from a political fight um, within the U.S. colonial government itself. So the Philippine Scouts as a military formation was a bit of an improvisation, but it very quickly becomes part of the U.S. Army. So after 1901, Uh, the scouts are American soldiers, even if they're sort of, um, you know, kind of have a second class status. Uh, what that means is that the army gets to decide where they go, what they do. Um, and, you know, they, they are, they're giving the orders. Um, and that runs up against the political uh, ambitions of a new civilian governor of the Philippines, uh, William Howard Taft. Right? So another name that we know from, from U.S. history that in fact actually um, you know, really kind of uh, uh, intersects with Philippine history as well. Um, Taft was a, a civilian attorney. He was sent out um, by uh, President McKinley to, um, as the first civilian governor of, of the territory, 
um, and he had no ability to tell the army what to do. And he fought bitterly um, with his rival uh, on the military side, uh, General Arthur MacArthur, father of General Douglas MacArthur. Um, but MacArthur wouldn't let uh, Taft order his soldiers around. So Taft's solution was to establish a new force, the Philippine Constabulary, notionally a police force, um, and it would eventually sort of evolve into the Philippine National Police um, in the ways that, that still exist today. Uh, the Constabulary was doing a lot of the same work uh, of counterinsurgency, of uh, political suppression, um, but answered to William Howard Taft instead of Arthur MacArthur. So once again, we see sort of American politics and American political priorities shaping and reshaping uh, the landscape on the ground in the Philippines. Can you also talk a little bit more about um, civilian workers engaged in the U.S. military? You write about construction of the Subic Bay Naval Station. You mentioned that convict laborers were even engaged in some of the construction activities. And there were also domestic workers recruited by the U.S. Navy um, uh, during that time. Um, tell us a little bit more about the civilian uh, contribution by Filipinos to the U.S. military occupation. Well, this is a, a theme of the book that actually just emerged from reading the sources themselves, right? Um, and mm -hmm. that uh, the archival records are pretty thin um, for the history of the U.S. and the Philippines in this period. In part, um, some records were never kept. Um, some were destroyed in World War II. Uh, and many of the people that, uh, that you know, make up the the heart of the first half of the book um, didn't read or write, um, or certainly didn't read or write um, anything that was left uh, for us a century later. So I had to sort of go back and imagine, you know, sort of what was it, what was this interaction like? Um, you know, and in some ways, one of the questions that helped me the most was asking, who's doing this work? Um, and that's a pretty basic question of, of labor history, but it's one um, that, that often military history doesn't stop to ask or answer. Um, and asking who's, you know, what is the job and who's doing the work leads us to see uh, that military labor includes both uniformed personnel, people like the Philippine Scouts, uh, as well as civilians, right? There are all kinds of tasks, like you mentioned, construction, um, road building, um, you know, uh, fortification, um, and in fact, actually sort of everyday labor of kinds of, build, of care, cooking, cleaning, laundry, um, you know, these kinds of, uh, these kinds of questions are, are crucial to understanding the impact that the U.S. military had in the Philippines, um, both the opportunities that it created, um, as well as the way that it shaped labor markets and economies uh, in the new colony. What I also found striking in, in the earlier decades of the U.S. occupation in, uh, of the Philippines is that um, early on, um, most of the observers, including U.S. Um, at officials, thought that uh, the Philippines could not really be defended against the potential attack by the expanding Japanese empire that had just beaten the Russians um, uh, in, in, in 1904-1905. Um, so you write that in 1907, just a few years later, Nobody really seriously thought that the Philippines could be defended against Japanese attack. Um, and I think that's quite remarkable uh, thinking ahead, uh, a few decades ahead with um, uh, the further expansion of the Japanese in the, in the Western Pacific and the coming of the Second, Second World War. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that, how uh, the Philippines figured in uh, U.S. planning in the Pacific? Yeah, and I think you've hit on... a what was, for me, a, a very important turning point in this story, that if we looked just at what Americans were thinking in 1898 about whether to acquire the Philippines as a colony, their thinking um, tended to be about other European empires, particularly the British and the Germans. Um, but then uh, a bolt of lightning hits in, in 1905 um, when Japan defeats Russia um, in the Russo-Japanese War. And this changes the, the terrain completely um, in the Pacific and leads Americans to realize that, uh, th that this is the rival that they would face and that they would face that rival from the Philippines, um, an island archipelago uh, 
seven, you know, thousands of miles from the west coast of the United States, not particularly well positioned um, for uh, either attack or defense with regard to Japan. Uh, and some of the greatest military minds of the early 20th century, people like Alfred Thayer Mahan, um, General Leonard Wood, uh, President Theodore Roosevelt, um, sort of thought long and hard about this um, and realized fairly quickly on that the Philippines was a strategic liability more than a resource. And in fact, you know, uh, Roosevelt himself calls it America's Achilles heel um, right around 1907, um, you know, more than 30 years before the Pearl Harbor attacks. Um, but nevertheless, um, the United States, uh, you know, the United States commits to, um, to the Philippines, to fortifying in particular uh, its sort of Navy and Army stations at Subic and Corregidor Island. Um, and what's also interesting to me is that Filipinos are having some of these same conversations about themselves. Right. Um, and, and their relationship both to the United States and to Japan. Um, and so there are some Filipinos who look uh, to Japan as a, as a model of a nation in Asia that could rise and be independent and withstand against American and European colonialism. Um, but there were others who looked at Japanese in, uh, colonizations in Korea and in Taiwan and worried, in fact, actually, um, that the rise of Japan was a threat to Philippine uh, independence and Philippine sovereignty. Then a few years later, the World War breaks out um, and uh, thousands of Filipinos are drafted into the U.S. Army because that Selective Service Act requires um, all younger men in the territorial United States to register. So in the end, 6,000 Filipinos are drafted in the U.S. Army, you write, and another 6,000 into the U.S. Navy. So quite a big contribution uh, by Filipinos um, in uh, in that great war, the First World War. Um, the war also brings greater self-government for the Philippines with the Jones Law in 1916. Um, there's a Philippine National Guard, and Wilson plays quite an interesting role. So lots to talk about here. It's also the subject of your first book, as you mentioned. Um, uh, I'm sure you had to hold, hold back a little bit, uh, not writing more about uh, the First World War. Um, tell us a little bit uh, about the Filipino contribution in particular to, to the U.S. Armed Forces um, during the war. Well, I think this reminds us that um, the First World War really was a world war. Right? Uh, it wasn't just a, a conflict on the Western Front in Europe, um, in, and, and that was it. Um, that this was a war that mobilized uh, not only nations, but empires, um, and, that, uh, and all the, the corners of the world were sites of conflict, um, not of battle or, or in any traditional sense, um, but of mobilization and also of political contest. And I think we can see this in a couple of different places, uh, that uh, first of all, um, you know, there is a kind of a, a mobilization of, of personnel um, that uh, the Philippine scouts don't leave the islands. They don't participate um, in, in war in Europe, um, but most of their American officers do. Uh, many of them leave. Um, and many of the names that we recognize from the First World War, John J. Pershing um, really being the most, uh, the most obvious of them, um, uh, arrive in, in Europe um, just a few years after uh, service in the Philippines. Um, and that, that shades to some extent their experiences in, in Western Europe, um, but it also just shows what a small army uh, the U.S. Army was um, when the U.S. Um, declared war in April of 1917. Um, and as you mentioned, um, by 1917, uh, Filipinos were already migrating to other, uh, to, you know, territorial parts of the United States, to Hawaii, as well as to the states on the West Coast. And when they entered those places, they were subject to the Selective Service Act. And that, that meant that every man between 18 and 45 had to register, and ultimately some 6,000 did serve. Um, and for many, that was a path toward naturalization and, and U.S. citizenship that would have been denied to them if they had remained in the Philippines itself. The story of Filipinos in the Navy, though, is a little bit different, um, because, uh, in part because the, the Navy didn't draft um, in the First World War, it relied on volunteers, um, but it did nevertheless recruit a large number of Filipinos. And here, the story intersects in part with the complicated racial politics of, of Jim Crow and segregation 
that goes along with the Wilson administration. Um, that the Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels, um, was, a, was a Wilsonian uh, uh, and in many ways a, a typical Southern progressive, but that includes um, a Southern progressive commitment to, uh, to Jim Crow and segregation. Um, and uh, Josephus Daniels wanted fewer African-Americans in the Navy and in fact actually quietly implemented a ban on African-American recruitment. This opens doors for Filipinos uh, to serve, many of them taking some of the same roles uh, as, as enlistees, um, as enlisted sailors that African-American sailors had, uh, had, had filled for years. Um, and uh, and <clears throat> at the same time, it reveals that there's a kind of internal conflict within Wilsonian logic um, that, that plays out in the Philippines. On the one hand, um, you see a kind of a, a very hierarchical understanding of race, um, a very exclusive understanding of who can be an American. Um, and at the same time, uh, this very high-blown rhetoric about national self-determination, uh, about international peace and organization, um, all the things that, <clears throat> that in retrospect we remember more positively about Woodrow Wilson. <clears throat> And both of those are, are on view um, in the Philippines in World War I. Um, <clears throat> Filipino nationalists who are now calling directly for independence are using Woodrow Wilson's words against him. They, they read his, quote, his speeches carefully. And they use that language in their own speeches and demanding national independence and national sovereignty. And for many of them, the crucial institution and that is the key that would unlock the door, is a new proposed institution called the Philippine National Guard. Right? And just to back up, right, <clears throat> the National Guard is the collection of, uh, of U.S. state militias and territorial militias. But because the Philippines was not a, an incorporated territory of the United States, it did not actually have a militia. Right? It, um, and so uh, the idea among both uh, American reformers and Filipino nationalists was to establish one, was to establish a Philippine National Guard. The hope for this was that it would create a citizen soldier, right, just as the National Guard does um, and or aims to do in the States, right, that it would sort of tap into uh, our Republican traditions um, rather than our imperial ones. And the Philippine National Guard was also um, going to be different from the Philippine Scouts in that it would have Filipinos as officers, right? that the Philippine Scouts had thousands of soldiers, um, but very few of them um, had any chance of progressing to, to a role of an, of an officer status. Um, whereas the Philippine National Guard promised that there would be officers who would be trained. And if you're a nationalist and you want your country to be independent, and it's a colony of the United States, and it's, it's in Asia, and you know that the Japanese empire is rising, you want your country's independence to be meaningful, you know that there's not going to be any meaningful independence without an army, and there's not going to be an army without an officer corps. Right? So the Philippine National Guard, for many of the nationalists, is the key to actual real independence. And, but once again, this runs up against Wilson's logic. Right? and Wilson's thinking about race. Because the, the laws regarding the National Guard are such that when National Guard soldiers enter the U.S. Army or federalized in federal service after 1916, they carry their ranks with them into the U.S. Armed Forces. And what that meant is that there, would, there could potentially be Filipino officers giving orders to white soldiers at a time when, there are, uh, when the, the question of African-American officers is also bitterly uh, contested in the United States. And this is a deal breaker. And for me, one of the sort of most um, sort of heartbreaking parts of the book is that we do see a, a Philippine National Guard. It was created. Um, and in fact, actually, it, its first day of training was November 18th, 1918, hmm. one week after the war was ended. Right? Hmm. Um, and so the, the disappointment that Philippine independence advocates must have felt um, when they showed up that day for that first day of training must have been really palpable. Right. Um, their training was not in vain. Philippine independence would 
come eventually. Uh, we'll, we'll get there very soon um, after the First World War in the 1920s, particularly after immigration restriction in the United States was passed in 1924. Um, Filipinos um, increased uh, increasingly migrated to Hawaii and the West Coast. Um, so you mentioned in the 10-year period um, after 1924 um, till 1934-34, uh, Many, mostly male Filipinos, um, moved east across the Pacific. Um, tell us a little bit about these these migrants, uh, why they moved, um, where they settled, uh, what experiences they had. Well, in in the years between the two world wars, uh, Filipinos were, in some sense, um, ex- exceptional. Um, in American immigration history, at a time when law had excluded. Chinese migrants in any substantial numbers after 1882 um, excluded Japanese migrants in any substantial numbers after 1924. Filipinos, because they were colonial subjects of the United States, were free to enter um, the United States uh, as migrants or enter the continental United States or Hawaii. Um, And in many ways, they filled some of the same jobs um, that other Asian migrants had done before them. Um, particularly um, in agricultural industries, um, sugar in Hawaii, um, the fields in California, almost every crop in central California employed a substantial uh, Filipino labor force, um, as well as cannery work and fishing um, work in in Alaska and the Pacific Northwest. Um, And uh, this requires Filipinos to to find work, to move around for it, um, often seasonally, um, and to kind of find a place for themselves um, in, in states like California. Um, as they do this, they are intersecting with some, uh, some, some communities that had been established right around the same time by Filipinos who had served in the U.S. Navy. And that's, uh, that, uh, this naval recruitment brings some Filipinos to the, to the continental United States and also allows them to bring their, their, and usually their wives, their families, others um, to settle in Navy communities in the West Coast, which is why some of the very first Filipino-American settlements um, in North America are in places like San Diego, California, Vallejo, California, uh, Seattle and Bremerton, Washington, um, all on the West Coast, and then on the East Coast, places like like Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Brooklyn, um, where there are substantial Navy yards. Um, And so it's a sort of dialogue between working class agricultural workers and in many ways working class sailors um, who are building these new communities, um, but at the same time facing discrimination um, and resistance from, uh, from Americans, um, you know, white Americans in the United States um, that are only accelerated um, in the 1930s as, as the depression hits and competition for these jobs becomes intense um, and calls to exclude Filipinos um, intersect uh, very uh, directly with calls by uh, Philippine independence advocates for independence. And so independence in some ways becomes the excuse, um, the pretext for exclusion. Um, and in 1934, the United States uh, uh, adopts legislation um, called the Tidings McDuffie Act, which promises um, the independence of the Philippines uh, about 10 years after the, 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 the passage of this uh, legislation. Um, so in 1934, things are moving on a very different course. But that's a combination of economic issues, uh, immigration issues, as well by 1934 as the increasing militarism of Japan. You quote um, Theodore Roosevelt's son, Theodore Roosevelt Jr., um, uh, saying about Philippine independence that, um, quote, we could screen our base motives with a generous gesture, unquote. Um, I thought that was quite a powerful um, way of summarizing uh, the roundabout way whereby the United States offered uh, Philippine independence 10 years down down the road, uh, mainly, as you mentioned, to block further Filipino immigration. Um, so um, tell us a little bit more about this uh, Tidings McDuffie Act. It's quite remarkable if you, you know, um, see this act in the longer history of other empires and decolonization. Uh, there's, I think, very few cases that empires set 
um, some of their major colonies free outside of major war. Um, so uh, can you contextualize this a little bit more, this uh, Tidings-McDuffie Act and the 10-year waiting period as well? Um, uh, uh, the independence was set for July 4th, 1946. Um, uh, um, how did this Philippine Commonwealth um, fair really in these in these in these ten years um, um, in the 1930s and then with the with the Second World War we'll talk about in a second. Um, well, it, independence yes was uh, was well I think we have to give credit to Theodore Roosevelt Jr. for at least acknowledging that those <laughs> motives were base motives um, in in the first place right um, and the Tidings McDuffie Act on the one hand, didn't actually grant independence to the Philippines. It just mm -hmm. announced that it was going to come um, on a timetable um, that was more explicit um, to, uh, than previous timetables. This wasn't the first promise of independence that Americans had made uh, to the Philippines, um, and nor was it full independence, um, that there were new institutions of self-government, and the Philippines had a president now, Manuel Quezon, um, it had a Senate uh, and an Assembly. Um, it could pass legisla legislation, um, but it still had a, a high commissioner, someone who could veto um, its, uh, it, its legislation um, if that it passed. It also, uh, the Tidings-McDuffie Act also reserved to the United States uh, the responsibility and the authority for the national defense of the Philippines. Um, and so control over... Uh, important military bases in Manila and outside, at Corregidor and Subic, um, were you know still in the hands of of the U.S. military. Um, it did, however, create a really interesting partnership um, between the U.S. military and the emerging military of the Philippine Commonwealth, um, a force called the Philippine Army. And the very first bill passed by this new legislature, the Philippine Commonwealth. Uh, is the National Defense Bill, which says we need, a, we need an army, um, a proper army. And you can hear in that the echoes of the Philippine National Guard debate a generation earlier. Um, but uh, they found American advisors to advise them on what that army should be and what shape it should take. Um, and that uh, it takes the, the form of its primary military advisor, General Douglas MacArthur, um, who goes to the Philippines in semi-retirement, uh, to undertake this work. And his right man, hand man in the job is Major Dwight Eisenhower, right? um, who had worked with uh, MacArthur before, um, um, most notably in the suppression of, of the Bonus Army um, in, in 1930 in Washington, um, uh, but this, um, or 1932 in Washington. This uh, partnership um, basically creates the Philippine Armed Forces um, in much of the way that they would remain for the 20th century, um, and in ways that tie them very closely to American military interests. So both Eisenhower and MacArthur knew um, that there wasn't going to be a lot of money. Right? They could design the best army in the world, um, but they couldn't pay for it, right? or paying for it would bankrupt this new independent nation. Uh, so they knew they had to create a force that would be powerful enough to protect the country, um, protect the Philippines, uh, until the United States could uh, defend it or reinvade and, and rescue it. In doing so, they're drawing on a top secret U.S. Army plans, one called War Plan Orange. Um, and War Plan Orange um, is basically designed to, uh, to help a small military force hold out as against an an, uh, an invader, in this ca imagined case, Japan, for as long as possible. But to do that, the, the war plan Orange said, uh, American and Filipino troops will retreat. Um, they'll leave Manila and retreat to the most sort of defensible part of the country, the Bataan Peninsula. Uh, and when they get there, they'll hold out long enough for U.S. Navy ships to come from the, the main U.S. Uh, naval base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. Right? So in the 1930s, this made financial sense. It made military sense because um, the U.S. is trying to mobilize in preparation for possible war both in the Pacific and the Atlantic and can't commit a great deal of military force. 
Um, but it has that that sort of, you know, the one must have is a substantial U.S. Navy presence uh, in Pearl Harbor that could cross the Pacific uh, to rescue the Philippines in the case of Japanese invasion. Um, and so that's, um, that's the surprise in many ways of, of Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. But as these plans are being made in the 1930s, um, it, is a, it is a chance for, for Phil, Philippine soldiers um, to sort of see a path for national defense, um, as well as for Americans to kind of shape that in ways that basically guarantee that the Philippines can only be independent if it's independent on America's terms. Let's talk a little bit more about that Second World War um, that you've already hinted at. You actually have two chapters um, uh, about the period from 1941 to 1946 uh, with Philippine independence. There's so much to talk about in the Second World War, so I just wanted to highlight a few um, items. Um, so what I found quite interesting in your in your telling of that um, cataclysmic war is uh, that there was really a tug of war going on between the Japanese occupiers of the Philippines and the United States trying to um, reconquer uh, uh, both uh, the territory, uh, the land, but also the hearts and minds of, of Filipinos. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what this contest um, um, looked like, both on the battlefield uh, as well as um, uh, in terms of the, the cultural uh, and even um, a racial um, um, brotherhood um, that the Japanese were trying to, to sell to, to Filipinos? Yes. So uh, after the after Japan attacks the United States on December seventh, nineteen forty one, that attack takes place both in Hawaii um, and in the Philippines, right? Um, uh, and very soon thereafter, Japan invades and conquers. Uh, and it's worth remembering that um, you know this is not the first empire that has in, that has invaded and conquered the Philippines. Um, that just you know forty. Uh, four years earlier, right, the United States had done the same. Um, so in many ways, Filipinos are forced to live between two empires um, during this time period, to borrow the title of a really excellent book on this topic from the 1960s by Theodore Friend. Uh, and that navigation of imperial power is uh, incredibly difficult work for Filipinos. Um, there's uh, uncertainty about who you can trust, um, what people's loyalties are, and there are incentives to uh, to betray or to be a double agent um, that you know sort of make the, the everyday life of of living through Japanese occupation, um, you know, uh, something like a, a, a spy novel from from the Second World War, um, and some really difficult political choices um, that sort of tear Philippine society apart. Mm -hmm. um, But this is a, a, a task that's being undertaken by Filipinos themselves with almost no Americans around um, to shape it, that the U.S. military forces are uh, soundly defeated and, and withdraw and surrender um, at Bataan and then at Corregidor in 1942. Um, most American troops are, are uh, kept as, as prisoners of war. Uh, most American civilians in the region are interned as, uh, uh, over the course of the war in Manila and elsewhere. Um, and there are small numbers of Americans who join guerrilla forces, but they are far outnumbered by the number of Filipinos who are uh, in guerrilla forces. And, uh, and so in some ways, this question of which of these two empires is the best path to national liberation becomes the, the central question um, for Filipinos, right? Um, and uh, a small number do think um, that Japan is the better path forward. Right, um, and uh, Japan has invaded the country and conquered it in the name of its so-called co-prosperity sphere, um, the Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere, um, which would promise Asia for Asians um, that would throw off European colonialism. Um, and in fact, um, the Philippine, uh, or the in fact, Japan establishes um, a provisional civilian government with Filipinos at its head. It grants independence um, to the Philippine Republic um, in 1943, um, and in fact actually pressures uh, this Philippine Republic um, and its president, Jose Laurel, to declare war against the United States um, in 1944. 
Um, these uh, show that that the question of national independence um, could not just be answered by the United States alone. Um, and so it, it's a task that, that Filipinos had to debate and understand. Some of them did really think um, the United States was, um, was liberating um, them in 1944 or 45. Um, some of them um, did not. Some of them thought neither of these imperial powers was the path to national liberation. And some rejected national liberation in favor of a kind of working class um, sort of or peasant revolution, right? Um, the hook balahap, uh, sort of uh, inspired by socialist ideologies of, of various kinds, um, advocated the overthrow of all kinds of empires um, in their guerrilla war. So um, like you said, uh, it's, it is really a battle, not just for Philippine territory, um, a battle that America wins uh, soundly. Uh, in conjunction with the guerrilla forces in the Philippines. But it's also a battle for the hearts and minds of Filipinos themselves. After the destruction of uh, the U.S. reconquest of the, of the Philippines, a big question arises about how to compensate uh, Filipinos who fought with, if not in, uh, the U.S. armed forces. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about um, the complicated politics of veteran um, benefits, compensation, um, and citizenship rights that are attached to those um, benefits. Yes. And I think uh, for me, if there's one um, sort of thing that I want people to learn about um, over the course of reading this book, it's a law that is taught in almost no American uh, history class, which is the Rescission Act of 1946. Um, it is fundamentally a broken promise. So over the course of the Second World War, uh, Filipinos serve in the U.S. armed forces in several different ways, but most specifically uh, and in greatest numbers as the Philippine army troops, those that, that had in the forces designed by MacArthur and Eisenhower in the 30s, um, fight um, uh, after 1941 directly under U.S. command. Um, and also after invasion, um, as about a hundred and uh, as about a hundred thousand Filipinos uh, serve in guerrilla forces that are later incorporated into the Philippine army, right? So at least two hundred thousand, possibly as many as two hundred and sixty thousand Filipinos, are fighting under the American flag on U.S. territory uh, against Japan for uh, the liberation of the Philippines, um, and the law is quite clear um, through most of the Second World War that along with that military service comes the, the benefits that accrue to, you, to military service and rights of naturalization that would be extended to non all non-citizens who serve in the U.S. armed forces. Mm -hmm. But in 1946, the Rescission Act rescinds that. That's what rescission means. It rescinds that um, privilege and, and deems that service to not to have been service in the U.S. armed forces but merely with it right, or for it. Um, and that generates decades-long um, efforts by Filipino World War II veterans and their advocates to receive equitable citizenship rights, both uh, in terms of naturalization and of veterans' benefits. And so for me, this is why uh, this book can't stop with, um, at the end of World War II, because in many ways that story is only beginning. Um, that some 64,000 of the 76,000 men on the Bataan Death March were Filipinos. And most Americans don't know that. Um, and that most of those men waited until 2009 um, to receive equitable federal benefits from the U.S. government. And so the, in some ways, the book becomes um, not only a military history, um, but also a history uh, of civil rights and, and social movements and, and racial equality. And that, that sort of dovetail with a lot of the other big questions of the second half of the 20th century. Let's move into that second half of the 20th century um, in the um, year after the end of the Second World War. And in July 1946, the Philippines do uh, get their independence. Um, uh, and the relationship ostensibly between the United States and the Philippines changes, but maybe not quite so much as one would think. Um, That's what I was quite surprising reading your book uh, that uh, the independent Philippine government actually had quite a lot of 
um, ground uh, on which they agreed on with the United States in this early Cold War. They shared a commitment to anti-communism. Um, there was a kind of simultaneous red scare um, uh, against uh, the hooks uh, in in the Philippines, um, really at the same time as McCarthyism and in a, in a kind of the second red scare in the United States. Uh, bases become a big issue, um, um, and uh, Filipinos serve in various hotspots of the Cold War uh, in Korea, and then um, most prominently um, in uh, in Vietnam, where this bond, as you write, between the U.S. and Philippines uh, probably sees its biggest test. Um, let's focus maybe on the on, on the Vietnam War for now. Um, uh, various other Asian soldiers are actually fighting for the United States, so the Allied forces in, in Vietnam. Um, you write 50,000 South Koreans, 12,000 from, from Thailand. Um, uh, but not that many Filipinos, but many of them actually work um, as contract workers on U.S. bases in Guam, which is one of the major supply bases for the uh, war effort in Vietnam. What role do, does the independent Philippines still play for U.S. war making um, in uh, the Cold War and especially in Vietnam? Well, in some ways, the Philippines takes on a, a crucial role in the Cold War in Asia as a U.S. ally. Right, as a dependable uh, anti-communist ally and as a dependable military uh, ally, offering both small-scale uh, troop support in Korea and Vietnam, and that sort of allows the United States to depict those conflicts as multilateral um, uh, uh, engagements. Um, but also, I think, as you as you point out, as a as a labor force. Right, um, not only um, in South Vietnam but out, but outside of it, right, and in the Philippines, where um, two really large U.S. military installations persist after independence in 1946: Subic Bay Naval Station um, and Clark Air Base, um, just outside Manila. Um, U.S. Army forces are not in the Philippines in substantial numbers after independence, but Clark and Subic become kind of the, the anchor, uh, in many ways, of the United States uh, action in Southeast Asia. That is, uh, it creates tensions and challenges in the Philippines, just as the war did in the United States, um, political conflicts over it, um, conflicts that then surrounded the Philippine president, Ferdinand Marcos, elected in 1965, re-elected in 1969, um, and then uh, after the declaration of war uh, of martial law in September of 1972, um, really sort of a, a, a dictatorial figure until 1986. Um, and the, the Philippines conflict over Vietnam is in some ways a, a distillation of, of the central question of, of Philippine foreign policy in the post-war era, which is, are we better off with the Americans or without them? Um, and, you know, at a time when this is not a, a strong country uh, militarily, um, uh, it faces, you know, sort of threats from within and without. Um, and there's a question of whether large scale U.S. military presence is, and in some cases U.S. nuclear power um, is making the country safer or less safe. Um, and we see that most intensely debated um, in the Philippines in the 60s and, uh, and the eve of martial law. And then again, that question really guides the movements for the overthrow of the Marcos regime in 1986. Let's talk a little bit more about that um, chapter in, in, in Philippine history and its connection to the United States. Um, it's quite remarkable that this swift and peaceful overthrow of Marcos through this people power movement in, in 1986 left a deep impression on U.S. neoconservatives. That was quite surprising for me to learn. Um, so there's also a Philippine um, story to the rising neoconservative movement um, uh, that would come into power, really, then uh, under George uh, W. Bush in the um, uh, in the early twenty first century. Um, uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, um, how the neoconservatives thought about regime change um, and what uh, uh, the Marcos overthrow um, um, had to do with with their thinking. Well, um, well. First of all, just you know, remind people that People Power was a, a social movement um, in February of 1986 that was, by many measures, the largest um, public protest um, uh, in the country's history, and in some ways one of the largest in world history. 
Hmm. Um, it was a peaceful um, overthrow of an, uh, a non-democratic regime by, uh, by a democratic popular movement. Um, and this um, took a lot of Americans by surprise. Um, uh, Americans who had a kind of Cold War logic of, well, you know, uh, some of these dictators are not so great, but at least they're on our side. Right? Um, and increasingly, by the ni- mid-1980s, um, there was dissatisfaction with Ferdinand Marcos. Um, and uh, this led to debates within the Reagan White House and, and the Reagan administration that revealed that there were different kinds of, of conservatives, um, different kinds of Republicans in the 1980s. Um, and I was struck as I was doing my research how many of the names that we associate with the, the war in Iraq in the 2000s were involved in foreign policy making in the 1980s, particularly um, the Undersecretary of State or Deputy, Deputy Secretary of State for Asian Affairs, uh, Paul Wolfowitz. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Wolfowitz would be in, uh, in the 2000s a kind of an intellectual architect of the U.S. war in Iraq. Um, but he made one or two sort of brief statements in, in the 1980s um, or about his time in the 1980s that suggest that some of the lessons he drew from that experience um, would be used again a generation later. He was uh, struck by the possibility of popular regime change um, that came with U.S. support. Um, and from a military perspective, people power was easy. Um, it did not make great demands on the U.S. military. Um, there were very few U.S. troops in country at the time. Um, and it led to uh, a continued sort of uh, uh, alliance between the Philippines and the United States. That, um, that analogy really breaks down um, in Iraq uh, in 2003. Um, the the um, that although uh, the overthrow of, of Saddam Hussein was popular among Iraqis, um, uh, Saddam Hussein and, and Ferdinand Marcos were different, and the nature of U.S. involvement was different, mm-hmm. um, and things didn't work out anywhere um, sort of like the, the earlier case. Um, but many of the people who sort of brought to um, these debates in 1986, um, debates that I followed by reading some of the very first emails ever sent in the White House, um, <laughs> Uh, were um, you know were sort of working out sort of what the what it would mean for for democracy and revolution um, uh, in in the 1980s and the last days of the Cold War. That's fascinating. Yeah, I noticed this Oliver North of um, Iran Contra fame uh, apparently sent some of the first emails um, at the time. Uh, so technology is changing uh, with with the world uh, in the later parts of the of the 20th century. Um, uh, let's uh, talk a little bit more about uh, what happens after 9-11. Uh, the U.S. and the Philippines, you say, enter a counterterrorism alliance. Uh, you mentioned the um, uh, U.S. interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq, but then there's also um, um, wings of global jihadism in the Philippines itself with the Moro Islamic Liberation Front and Abu Sayyaf. Um, how does the United States figure in in this uh, counterterrorism strategy in the Philippines, and what what do what does the Philippine government um, have to to gain um, uh, being part of this this alliance with the United States? Well, here I think it's important, uh, and I wanted to kind of make sure that um, readers remembered right that Operation Enduring Freedom um, is uh, the name that we usually just um, call Afghanistan, um, mm-hmm. but in fact, Operation Enduring Freedom was a, a, a broadly authorized military response to the September 11th attacks in the United States um, that authorized global um, sort of intervention. And the largest deployment of U.S. forces to in in that um, in that operation outside Afghanistan was to the Philippines, um, in particular to the southern Philippines, um, where which is the primary home of the of the Muslim minority of Filipinos, um, where uh, a small faction um, of of people uh, were advocating sort of alliance with Al Qaeda and with other sort of jihadist movements as a way of sort of challenging their, their sort of minority status and their sort of economic disenfranchisement um, by the Philippine government. Uh, sometimes this violent movement um, and its rhetoric 
sounds so close to Al Qaeda um, that um, that Americans understand this to be what they call the the second front, right, of the war on terror, um, and substantial numbers of U.S. troops. Uh, the numbers maybe will remain to be confirmed by future historians um, with more declassified documents than, than I was able to read. Um, but at least about 7,000 American uh, troops um, in, in country um, in the years right after 9-11, um, where they are largely in, engaging in advising the Philippine armed forces, but also sometimes engaging in direct combat um, with Abu Sayyaf and other related groups. Um, this is uh, is both in, an important aid um, to, to the Philippine government in its efforts against these organizations, but it also, I think, distorts um, the history a little bit um, because, in fact, uh, Abu Sayyaf, um, although it often used uh, the rhetoric of al-Qaeda, was probably not actually um, an important wing of that movement um, and, and probably never taken all that seriously by Osama bin Laden um, or, um, or any of the other uh, sort of leaders of the movement. Um, but it certainly led uh, the United States to interpret it that way. Um, and in fact, we see some of the same reactions to terrorism in the Philippines after uh, September 11th uh, that we saw in the United States. Um, increased militarization, um, increased counterterrorism legislation, other kinds of movements like that, um, that I think show that these military bonds between the two countries uh, are are you know just as strong in some ways today as they were um, when U.S. Uh, when the U.S. had thousands of soldiers at Subic or Clark. You end your book with a chapter on the pivot and after, uh, referring to the Pacific pivot under the Obama administration with Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, where the United States. Uh, um, military in particular wanted to shift its focus and its resources um, to the Pacific with an eye of containing China. And that's, of course, still the moment we're, we're in. And then um, you even include more recent events with um, um, the current President Trump and um, the Philippine President Duterte and their bromance um, in, recent, in recent years. Um, your, the final sentence of your book um, uh, stood out to me. You said, say that America's second Pacific century can be different from the first one that you traced in your book. Can you explain a little bit more about what you uh, meant by, by saying that? Well, I would like the second... So let's say what, let me just say what won't be different, right? <laughs> that the second Pacific century um, will also involve the United States and the Philippines being very closely tied together. Um, that the, the, the mutual defense treaty that, that connects them um, is as an, a powerful military alliance, um, but the ties uh, between Filipino-Americans in particular um, uh, and the Philippines generate sort of connections that are unlikely to break. So that's not going to change. The two countries will continue to be bound together. They will build the second Pacific century together. Um, but I would love for that Pacific century to be Pacific um, in the sense of peaceful, um, to be a century bound together not by war, um, but, by, uh, but by the other tasks that are at hand, right, um, of responding to globalization, responding to climate change, um, responding um, to, to a world that needs to be rebuilt. Um, and as both countries, the United States and the Philippines, need to consider their democratic institutions um, and shore those up. Um, and that's a task that those two countries will need to undertake together. Um, and I think that that's different work than the century of war that they lived through between 1898 um, and, the, and the early 21st century. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, before we wrap up, um, we usually ask our authors to tell us a little bit about what they're working on right now. So you just finished this book, just came out a couple of months ago um, in this uh, uh, quite um, dramatic year of, of so many domestic and global crises. Um, so you just finished this book. What, what are you working on right now um, after this book came out? Um, well, 
although this book is pretty long, I feel like I didn't get to say everything I wanted to say. Um, uh, and in particular, um, I am hoping that the book opens doors for a lot of people uh, who to sort of to tell their own version of this story, um, whether they are um, you know, people who served in the U.S. Armed Forces, um, whose families had family members who served um, in the U.S. Armed Forces, um, and I, you know, sort of bringing that, bringing that, um, bringing that out. Um, and I'm working on a couple of different ways of of doing that. In particular, um, along with a couple of other scholars, I've been serving on the academic advisory board of a group called the Filipino Veterans Recognition and Education Project, PhilVet Rep. Um, which has been very active in developing a digital exhibition um, that will sort of guide sort of online viewers through uh, a lot of this history, focusing in particular on the contributions of Filipinos during uh, World War II and the efforts of Filipino World War II veterans um, in the years afterward. Uh, And we're working on a digital exhibition that will launch in November of 2020 um, Mm -hmm. called DutyToCountry.org. where people will be able to learn this history. They'll encounter oral histories that we conducted with a few World War II veterans, uh, themselves well into their 90s, a couple of them over 100 years old. Wow. Um, and, and really getting a, also as well for, for, for educators, K-12 teachers um, and college instructors, some educational materials to help them teach some of this history that, um, you know, that everyone wants to include in, in their courses, but but maybe you know doesn't necessarily know how to do so. So that's the thing I'll be working on for the for the foreseeable future. Great. That sounds like important public history, and we'll we'll link to these uh, websites in the interview notes. Chris, uh, I wanted to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you.